Welcome to episode 4 of Building the Future podcast with your host, Dutton. Hey, listen, if you want your business to be featured in this podcast, send an email to us at hello at thestarter.com. That is H-E-L-L-O at T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A dot com. And we'll take it from there. Without much ado, let's start. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Doton. Coming up today on Building the Future. Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky that the company I'm working with um, helps me to achieve my own personal goals. Which is? Which is to transform lives. And, um, you know, what is, how does that materialize? For me, it's about using my, my voice, my influence, my network to, uh, to drive people to make a difference to the world around them. My guest today is Bob Collimar. He is the CEO of Safaricom, one of the leading telco in Africa and pioneer of M-Pesa, the world's most developed mobile payment system. If there's any poster child of how innovative mobile technology is changing the way Africans live and work, M-Pesa will be a top contender. Bob was originally born in Guyana, but his work experience spans across diverse countries such as Japan, South Africa, and the UK, where he has held various senior roles in marketing, purchasing, retail, and corporate affairs. I tracked Bob down to be a guest in my podcast at a conference he and I were speaking in London. This interview was done at the hotel lobby, so you might hear a lot of background noise, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. So Bob, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. Tell me about you. So you, you were from Guyana originally, and you came to the UK, and you're in Africa. It seems you've gone full circle. Yeah. Tell me about that journey. I think you could say that. I mean, I, I grew up in Guyana until I was 16, and then I came to live here in London uh, for a while, and uh, then I got posted off to uh, Tokyo, where I lived for three years, and that was very different. And from Tokyo, I was sent to South Africa. Very reluctant to go to South Africa, especially Johannesburg, because uh, the perception of the place being very dangerous. But of course, I went there. I was very happy for four years. Was that post-apartheid? That was post-apartheid, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a lot of euphoria in South Africa then. Everybody wants to be in South Africa. Was that when Mandela was president? Uh, No, no, it was after Mandela was president. Uh, Thabo Mbeki was president then. Um, Although, you know, uh, Madiba was still alive, and I was fortunate enough to... Uh, to meet him and to have dinner with him, have lunch with him one day. Um, but I, I, in the period that I was in South Africa, I, I lived through, I think, technically four presidents. So it was um, technically Thabo Mbeki. And then we had, for a very short period, I think like 12 hours, we had uh, Ivy um, Katsepa Masaburi. Because Tabo was forced to Because leave. Tabo was forced to leave, and so she uh, took the reins for 12 hours. And um, then, of course, after that, we had uh, uh, Halima Matlantli. And, um, and then Jacob Zuma. Then we had Jacob Zuma. So, so were you yeah, running years. the business there? No, no, I was the, um, the chief corporate affairs officer there. 
for which for, business? For Vodacom. For Vodacom. And yeah. how did that, on, is because one of the big problems with people going to Africa to do business, because you were like one of those people that went to Africa to, as, to do big business. The, one of the big factors um, is, is the uncertainty, political uncertainty. How did that affect your business in in South Africa then with four presidents within a very short time and a bit of political uncertainty? I learned a lot. Um, and, you know, it was fun in, in a lot of ways because at the time we were uh, we were in the process of going through a BEE deal, which was difficult. Um, What's BEE deal? The Black Economic Empowerment right. deal. Um, and it was the biggest, I think, that South Africa has seen until that point. I'm not absolutely sure. Um, and so then you had to negotiate with the um, with the BEE partners, potential BEE partners, with government, with the trade unions. Um, BEE deal is like um, yeah. affirmative action where it's, you have it's to kind of affirmative action. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's it's, um, it's a bit more than uh, how many people you employ. Uh, there are a number of metrics. This was used to determine your black economic empowerment score. Um, it included, of course, how many um, black people you employed, how many of them were in management, how many of them were women, um, oh, how many of them, you know, what proportion of the company was owned by, um, uh, by a black partner, um, how much of your procurement was done from, uh, from black South Africans, I mean, quite specifically, black South Africans, it's mm -hmm. not just about being black. Um, and so all of those things contributed to a BEE score. And that BE score then helps you to do business with government. Oh, because if you don't have an, enough BE score, you will not be able to do business with government. You so have you a low have score and you can't work with government. And if okay. you can't work with government, um, and you know, because government also buys from so many other people, it, uh, it reduces your ability to do business in the country, generally. And, and you learned a lot from, from that, because you've never been in a situation where you have to do score based on ethnicity and... and no, no, I mean, that was strange, because when you look at how the South Africans pull up a staff chart, you know, unlike most, uh, most companies, most countries that just put up a straightforward staff tree. You know, you have columns, you have columns which recorded how many white males, white females, black males, black females, Indian, Indian males and females, coloreds. So it was, it was kind of strange because, you know, here in England, we've, we've kind of largely gone past that stuff. Yeah. Even though you have to maybe take when you're when you're applying for job which ethnicity, but you don't do that in a more overt way where you just write people's name like this person is black or this person is yeah. Asian, yeah. this person is yeah. yeah. So you find that a bit strange. No, I, you know, I mean, I, you know, because I'd worked in a few different cultures before. Then I was in uh, in Japan, and of course, in Japan, um, the culture is so very different to anything you've uh, you've done before. You learn how to deal with different cultures, and for me, it was just it's just the way it was, and you work with it. So you you seem to be a business, um, what would I call it, a, a business. Um, Fulani, uh, someone that travels a lot as, as a business person. So you you worked in the UK, South Africa, Japan, and now in Kenya. Um, how does it? Is that something that was deliberate? That you're always looking for opportunities in different geography, or it's just how your career just pan out? No, it just it just panned out that way. In fact, I never wanted to go to any one of those countries. Um, maybe except Kenya, but I, I certainly didn't want to go to Japan because it was too scarily different. Um, 
and then from Japan, which is the safest country in the world and the most honest country in the world, I was then sent to South Africa, uh, which um, by reputation. Well, at the time, it wasn't quite so much corruption that worried me. It was more crime, you know, the carjackings. And okay. uh, when I went there, you know, I think, you know, everybody knew somebody who knew somebody who, who was carjacked. But by the time I left, everybody knew someone who had been carjacked. So it was like only one degree. Um, so for sure, you had to be a lot more careful in South Africa and then I, I learned to live behind high walls and things like that Right, uh, and that was a little bit different um, no actually it, wasn't, it was a lot different because it's not like that here in England Were you high profile in South Africa like you are in Kenya now? Not really not, not really I don't think there was anyone who was high profile so much apart from maybe politicians okay. in South Africa So let's talk about your Kenyan story because that is one of the most interesting things a lot of people want to hear because you some people don't even know that you were not the founder of Safaricom. It seems no, that Bob Coleman is Safaricom. No, no. Is, you became one of those charismatic CEO that is very synonymous to the business that they run. Um, so tell me about how you get to Safaricom and how that happens and... and yeah, no, I mean, the founder was a, was a great guy, actually, uh, and a very close friend of mine, Michael Joseph, um, the, like the founder and CEO. I think when he took over, they had like 20,000 customers. Was he part of Vodacom or Safaricom? Uh, he was part of Vo uh, Vodafone. Vodafone, yeah. And Vodafone sent him out there to, to deal with this little company. Uh, like I said, it was about 20,000 customers, and by the time I took over 10 years later, uh, we had... Um, probably, I think it was about 16 million customers. So he'd grown the business tremendously. And that's mobile, subscriber, mobile phone subscribers? Mobile phone subscribers, yeah. And it was that only trend that you're riding on a wave of mobile phone um, penetration in Africa? And, and also, I'm just, it's just a question, is that, is, that, is that it? And you're riding on that trend of mobile phone penetration and the rise of middle class and dispensable income or some infrastructure changes that the government made or was it deliberate actually door-to-door -door hacking and, and, and uh, hustling and getting people to, to buy mobile Well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't quite so much door-to-door -door hacking. Um, but I think what Michael recognized was that you have to provide the service for the people and not for the elite. And in those days, you know, mobile phones were like $2,000, $3,000. It was very much for the elite. Um, operators were charging per minute billing, stuff like that. And Michael had the foresight and the wisdom to realize that if you wanted to be successful, you had to reach the, uh, the ordinary man in the street. And we don't even use the word bottom of the pyramid. I, I find that, that phrase a little bit uh, disparaging. Um, so, you know, Michael always says, you know, I just want to reach the ordinary man in the street. And so by the time I got to Kenya 10 years later, um, the ordinary man in the street absolutely knew who Michael Joseph was. And uh, until now, you know, people still shout at me and they say, hey, Michael Joseph. Um, is that what happened? So people still, <laughs> people is, he, is, he, is he black as well? No, no, Michael is very different to me. He's, uh, he's white, he's shorter, he's older. So he doesn't look anything like me. Um, but I think it's the role rather than the person. Okay, so Michael matters. changed the trend of the company to become more accessible to the everyday people. Yes. And, and, and by changing the pricing? By pricing it in a way which was affordable. So, you know, he was the first one to introduce, uh, you know, a five cent scratch card. Um, most companies would have said, you know, who would waste, who would waste time doing that? There's the sheer logistic cost of distributing five cent um, 
five shilling scratch cards, uh, it's not really worth doing it. And uh, Michael says, no, I, you know, I'm going to do it. In the same way, when he launched M-Pesa. Um, oh, he launched M-Pesa. So I, was, I was assuming that you No, 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 it wasn't me. I mean, I'm, I'm just the Johnny-come-lately who rode on the back of someone else's success. Um, but when he launched M-Pesa, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, how, how is that even going to work? Because the fees are so low. Uh, but again, recognizing that we needed to reach the ordinary man in the street. And we've continued that tradition, uh, you know, since he left. And was that something that you had to argue a lot in your boardroom? To, to no, Michael, no, Michael never argued with anybody in the boardroom. He, he, just, he, drove, the boardroom. he, just, he just drove it. Um, I, I, unfortunately, am a little less experienced, and so I do have to argue a little bit more. But actually, the board, the board is a very unified board. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't take much to persuade them to do the right thing. So when you came to Vodafone, how did you keep the innovation going? I think for sure, when, we, when I first took the job, uh, I think a lot of people expected the company to fail. In fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of Kenyans will come back to me later and say, oh, man, I sold the shares when you took over because I thought now that the white man is gone, you, uh, you will destroy the company. Interesting. Um, and I said, well, so so they say how, uh, in Kenya, they still have that kind of, uh, I'm sure in most African countries as well, that whatever the white man does is good and black man is just... Oh, well, I think that you know there will always be people who will think who will think that way. But older generations who grew up in the colonial era. Not they weren't always older. I mean, some of them were, were younger people who, for some reason, didn't have the confidence uh, that I could do it. Um, I think I was as capable of failing as anybody else, whatever color I was, to be honest. Um, and so for those people who come back to me and say, oh man, I sold the shares. And I, I said, well, what price did you sell it at? And they might have sold the shares at like three shillings and other shares 20 shillings. And I said, well, it serves you right for being a racist. Um, uh, so at the time when Michael and I talked about it, and so, you know, he still is a very close friend, obviously. Um, you know, he said to me, look, I, I think, don't be, don't be upset if this thing goes south because really, honestly, we've got such a high market share. Uh, you've got a price war to deal with. He says, to be honest with you, I don't know that I would know how to deal with it. Even if I stayed, I think that the, that the company will lose its market share. And what was the market share when, when you took over? I think it was about 68%, something like that. 68%? Yeah. Oh, and your major competitor then worse? Um, they kind of flip-flop a little bit, but I think it was mainly Airtel. Airtel. Because Airtel had, um, had just been acquired by Barty. Yeah. Um, from Zane and they had just uh, as I was going in actually the week that I went in they dumped the price um, and started a horrible price war which you know we said we don't really want to take part in this, uh, this price war we joined for a while but after a while we said look I mean this is crazy it just doesn't make any sense the price wars don't make any sense for industry and so we stepped away and we put our prices back up but the other two other three players actually didn't they, they kept the price down and they kept killing each other and eventually one of them died which is what I expected that's what happened yeah I expected it to happen um, then another one sold out to somebody else and uh, then there's one more that's still standing and they haven't learned the lesson I mean they're still running a price war but you know it's their business not mine and you having a significant um, market share is that what gave you I'm going back to maybe my corner you or give you that boldness to be innovative with in person and create that no, no let's talk about in person story actually mm. there's a bit of the boldness of doing something like that or was it something that you created that became lucky the road on a particular wave that you're not you didn't know what you're doing and it just became huge 
At the beginning, at the beginning, yeah, for sure, we didn't know what we were doing. And I said we because I was on the board. I was a board member when Michael was the CEO. And so collectively, we weren't quite sure what it was we had on our hands. Um, even the targets we set ourselves didn't seem very ambitious after a while. Um, but the thing, you know, it was really embraced by, by Kenyans. And then we've continued to innovate around that. Uh, so the next big innovation we did, um, you know, we, mo we moved on from just moving money from one person to the next to allowing people to pay things like school fees and rent and stuff like that. We then moved on from that and then said, um, you know, should we become a bank? Which is a question that people ask us a lot. And this is when I just taken over. And we, uh, we thought about it and said, well, no, actually, we don't want to become a bank because we don't know how to be a bank. We know how to be a mobile operator and we're, you know, not a bad mobile operator. Uh, but we recognized that we wanted to help people to save money. And um, you can't really save. If you save cash, you're losing money because there's no interest and then there's inflation. So the value of your money declines immediately. And so we said, how can we help people to save money? And incidentally, how can we help them to borrow with dignity? Because if you want to borrow money and you're poor, you have to go to what we call a Shylock. Right. Um, and you're paying ridiculous rates. I mean, you could be paying 50 to 100% interest. Um, and so we partnered with a bank, um, the Commercial Bank of Africa, or CBA, who had always been a partner of ours uh, with M-Pesa. Um, and we launched, uh, I think, the next big innovation, which was called Mshwari. So Mshwari was a savings and borrowing product. And, and that was on the back of, a, of, of an existing license and a bank. So you're not replicating what, because you're, you're not replicating about a saving, bank. That's, that's almost like a bank to me. But then you're working with another bank. We're working that. with a bank. So technically, these customers, these Mshwari customers, are not my customers. I mean, they're my mobile customers, my Mpesa customers. But the, the Mshwari uh, product itself, they become the customer of the bank. So they borrow from the bank and they pay back to the bank. And if, the, if they don't pay back, then the bank loses the money, not me. There's been a lot of talk about a replica, replicability of Impasa uh -huh. um, in other African countries. And, and I think you've tried that in South Africa, which didn't pan out well. And then there's a lot of talk about, okay, why is Impasa not replicable in maybe Nigeria, for example, which, is the, which has the most population. People always come back with this um, um, regulation. Because in Nigeria, mobile operators cannot do what you're doing. Do you see the maybe lack of regulation or the um, good effect of, uh, the good outlook of regulation from the government hating or Mpesa in Kenya? Yeah, well, you know, like most products which are successful, the success usually is not really attributable to the people who developed it or who are running it. The success is usually attributable to the people who are using it. So the customer makes it successful. And so I often say that, yes, of course, you needed a good regulatory environment. Um, yes, you needed a high level of trust in the company because if you think about it, you know, you go to a, a, an old grandmother and say to her, give me your cash and I'll give you an electronic wallet. Um, you know, she will tell you to go to hell. Uh, but they did trust Safaricom. And so they, the trust mattered. We also had a good distribution network of the Green Mile. So we said that customers should never have to walk more than a mile to get to, to, get to So today we have about 100 and, uh, 150,000 agents, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Uh, so you don't have to go far. So the distribution mattered. But the thing which mattered more than anything else was the fact that Kenyans trusted the system and that they had a need. And that need was to move money from one place to the next.
because Kenyans have um, a tremendous culture of supporting each other. So if you have a, a funeral, then you know you can't afford the funeral on your own. So you you call on all your friends and family, and they send money, and they would physically send money. So Mpesa actually dealt with that thing. So without having to have a bank account, without having to have a bank account, um, so it allowed you to send money instantly, and then from there it grew. So I, I always say it's largely down to the generosity of the Kenyan spirit, and and, and, and the need as well. Because it uh, seems like you created a product that's solving a problem rather than the other way around. That you, created, you, look, you created a product and you're looking for a problem to solve. Correct. And, and the reason why it has not succeeded in lots of other places is because they had the product and then they went looking for what was the problem we're trying to solve. Right. So that leads me to the question about what you've been able to do on, on the back of M-Pesa and so many other products. Because I know you are into uh, uh, Uber like Taxi now and you're doing some other stuff that that it seems to be away from the normal mobile, uh, mobile phone operators that you do, like traditional mobile phone operator would do in other places. Now, this question is for you personally. Do you consider yourself like an entrepreneur that is always trying to solve problems using your expertise and the, on your technology and, and, and resources that you have? Well, we do have a culture of, of solving problems. And, you know, we say that our purpose is to transform lives. And I think the, the lucky thing about... Is that Safaricom goal? Or, because well, some of the time, the, the CEO, the company is a reflection of the CEO, right? Hmm. I, I think we're, um, you know, we've got a good intersection of the purpose of the company and the purpose of the, the CEO. It so happens that the previous CEO also had the same sense of purpose. Um, and when you get that intersection, it's a kind of a sweet spot. Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky that the company I'm working with um, helps me uh, to achieve my own personal goals. Which is? Which is to transform lives. And um, you know, what is, how does that materialize? For me, it's about using my, my voice, my influence, my network to... Um, to drive people to make a difference to the world around them. So whether I'm, a positive difference that is. So whether I'm trying to deal with um, the issue of uh, corruption, of human rights, of uh, protecting child rights. Um, you know, I happen to have a voice that, uh, whether people listen to it or not, I, I'm not sure, but, but certainly I have a voice. And so I use that voice to help to persuade businesses to pursue the protection of human rights, the eradication of corruption, or at least the reduction of corruption, um, the protection of children, etc. So the, the, that's... And, and you're using your business as a platform to do that? Yes, yeah. So let's go back to 16-year-old Bob in England going to school or 17-year-old Bob. What was the dream that you have for yourself? Do you see yourself being an entrepreneur or being an academic? or, or doing, What was the kind of thing that was shaping what you have, 17-year-old you, you then, and how it has that affected what you're doing now? I, I can't remember. I mean, it's such a long time ago now. I, I'm not quite sure I can remember what my dreams were at that age. Um, I was really trying to deal with the cultural shift of moving from um, uh, a somewhat warm and relaxed and friendly um, uh, Caribbean country to coming into a, a cold and what seemed to me at the time heartless um, an alien environment. You know, I was like the only black kid in the class and stuff like that. So I was trying to deal with that rather than think about what I was right, going to become. <laughs> because the reason behind that question is 
there are lots of, so we have lots of entrepreneurs now building businesses that shaping the world and, and entrepreneur is becoming a fad now and people just think the only way you can make a difference like what some of the things you've talked about now making helping people to changing lives and creating difference in their lives people will think the only way I can do that is that I become I own my own business or I join the government or I become I do something that I can control but you come the other route you, you, you rose up the corporate ladder and you're doing what a lot of entrepreneurs really really want to do so that's was where at one point did you come to what that your goal and your vision is that did it was it something that evolved over time or was it something that you said this is what I'm actually here to do and I want to yeah, well, go I, this route I don't think I ever set out to run a business or to be head of a business um, but I was set out in a, in a very small way if I could to help others um, that was the way that my grandmother brought me up and um, you know she was always of the opinion that you can always there's always somebody you can help it doesn't matter how low down the ladder you are and so I always spent a lot of time with those people who were less fortunate than me you could do that being a pastor you could do that being a, a doctor yeah you can yes you can um, but uh, again you know sometimes people ask me the question and I give them the answer uh, when they say you know so you know what do you attribute um, you getting to where you've got and I said well luck and luck is not a bad thing. Um, I tend to grasp opportunities. I mean, of course, you miss some, but you grasp opportunities, you take some risks, and you get to where you are. But for me, it was not never about the title. Um, in fact, I would always quite like to call myself a chief Yoda or something, um, because CEO, with the title comes some expectations, expectations of behavior and stuff like that. And so your comment about entrepreneurs, everybody wants to become an entrepreneur. Um, and I think it was Obama who said last year, um, you shouldn't focus so much on what you want to be, but what you want to do. Mm. And I focus much more on what I want to do. And that has helped you to make the decisions that you made over the course of your career that led you to this place. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you know, anybody can become a CEO. That's not that's not the, the big deal. You can start a company, and I've mean, seen so many young people who say, "I'm a CEO." That's great for you. You and the three people who are working for you. Um, it's not about what you want to be. I really want to know some of the risk you are taking now. Uh, for your, your business and how that is panning out. I know you're going into taxi, um, the, the on-demand uh, transport. You're fighting it out with Uber. And there's some other stuff that it seems to be doing as well. Um, so two questions here. One is, what is driving that? I, I know you can go back to that, your goal. And was, is it because you now, you, you've taken risk with person has worked out and it's giving you that confidence to go on and do more or is it just land grab say okay, let's just we, we can do this let's just do every let's go into every business that we can go into well let, I mean first of all let me uh, just address the Uber the Uber issue um, we're actually in partnership with a company who are running a taxi healing company it's um, you know it's not our company so we provide some services and we partner with them but in the same way you know we're happy to partner with Uber to do things so I'm not having a fight with Uber in fact I hope not because I'm relying on Uber to get me home <laughs> um, in England in, uh, here in London um, so it's, it's not a fight we are an open church all right? um, and in terms of the risk uh, we don't I don't think we set out to look at the risk we set out to look at how can we um, solve a problem and sometimes you can and sometimes you can't Sometimes you, you miss it altogether. Um, but it's, it's about problem solving, and we've got some very useful tools for doing that. Uh, our mobile network is a very good tool, given that there are more handsets in the hands of Kenyans than you know, access to 
toilets or clean water. Uh, and so we said, well, we're very privileged that pretty much every Kenyan has now got a mobile phone. So what can we do with that to solve a problem? So you said a bit like Google that's got this massive infrastructure or platform and you just think, what can we build on top of that that will solve problems? Yeah, it's, it's a very good example in a, in a small way, of course. Um, you know, Google set out, first of all, to, uh, you know, organize all the world's information, which they did, and then, uh, you know, to solve all the world's problems. Um, because if you think of Google, if, it, if you have all the information in the world, then you also have all the solutions. And that's their purpose. You know, their purpose is not to give you the fastest uh, search engine. I mean, they coincidentally happen to do that. But they're solving a problem. And uh, we set out to solve a problem. Uh, land grab is a very uh, harsh word. Um, well, some people will say that, yeah, that yeah, because it seems to be everywhere. People you, do. So ubiquitous in every sphere. Of yeah, yeah, and then people say that. People say, you know, you're too dominant, you're too big, you're getting involved in all sorts of things. Um, but we rather see ourselves as um, something, you know, like a raft. You know, put a raft on a, on a moving stream. That's what we want to be. So we want to be the thing that people can climb on top of to help them to get to where they want to get to. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll need some other people on that raft to help you to, to, to move it forward. Uh, and it's a raft on a moving stream because the customer needs are changing, the environment is changing, the politics is changing, the technology is changing. It's all changing very fast. And so we have to move with it. But we want to help you to get to where you want to get to. And in so doing, you know, we'll further our own, our own aims. It's not, um, the land grab is, is actually quite, quite, the wrong, quite the wrong analogy for that, for that reason. Right. Because a land grab is, is a fixed thing. And there's nothing about this world which is fixed these days. Okay, you see a lot of things dynamic in the, in the whole process and yeah, there'll be more needs and more opportunities that you have to go after. And you are just in a unique position to be able to, to do that we're in a, based on the resources yeah, that you've Yeah, that's we're a very privileged position to be able to do that. Let's talk about the future. There seems to be a lot of things happening in Africa now. Um, technology companies are coming up quickly. Uh, lots of things are happening that Africans don't have access to. It's, it seems it's easier now to start a business in Africa uh, thanks to mobile technology and also internet technology and youth as well. What do you, you've been privileged to be in the midst of all of this. You've seen a lot of things happen in Africa in the last maybe 10 years. How do you see this playing out in the future? First, let's talk about what is happening. What's your view of what is happening now and the opportunities that that create, including the challenges? And how do you see this panning out in the future? Um, the world is pretty excited about Africa. And I'd like to think that Kenya has played a big role in that. And indeed, M-Pesa in its own small way. So we use the phrase Silicon Savannah. Um, some of it is hype, of course. I mean, let's, let's be clear about that. By the way, a lot of um, startups need hype. Yeah. So you need to be able to create... It depends on how you're using the hype and whether you don't have substance, but you need the hype as well to be able to make people to be interested in small companies that are just doing some things that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, so there's some small companies who are doing uh, you know, a great job and there are lots of small companies that are actually doing a pretty bad job. Um, uh, but having said that, uh, you know, the world seems to be coming to Africa um, and in large parts to Kenya uh, because of the hype. And uh, we're seeing a lot of investments coming. We've seen IBM open up uh, their labs. We've seen Google open up offices there. We've seen, um, although I think this has probably been a little bit overhyped, um, Mark Zuckerberg kind of popping down. But, you know, I think that's probably more of a tourist trip than anything else, to be honest with you. I'm not sure there's much of substance there. Um, so there's a lot of interest on the continent. Uh, and I think it's great to be at the heart of that. 
And what about the companies that are being formed and being funded in in, in, in Africa? What 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 is your view of how they're impacting the lives of people? and also the ecosystem generally. So again, we come to this thing of, you know, uh, it's, it's about purpose. So the companies that start out with purpose, a very good one is MCOPA. So MCOPA starts out by saying, so what's the problem here? The problem is that there's going to be a whole bunch of Kenyans, millions, who will never get access to the grid electricity before they die because it's just, frankly, just too expensive. And so what can we do? How can we use this little um, toolkit of stuff that we've got? And they bolt it together, solar panels, some lights, some batteries, and they're now connecting half a million homes in East and Africa. And they can easily pay it using their mobile phone. And they, you pay, it's a pay-as-you-go. So you pay daily if you want, uh, which is cheaper than the price of kerosene. Uh, kerosene costs... 50 shillings whereas the this thing costs 40 shillings and after you paid for it for a year you've you've paid it off you know that's a very interesting business because it's a it's a lot of people start start up in africa and they try to replicate and copy and paste what happened in the west but that is an indigenous problem that needs to be solved with using technology that you don't build that kind of startup in the uk or us you don't need it but they build that which is solving real problem in africa using technology yeah so you know outsiders would come in and they give you mini grids and there's a place for mini grids um, and that kind of fancy solution but what these guys with MCOPA understood was that you you need to address it at the 40 shilling level and you need to exp- to develop it at a daily level so it's no good saying to the guys you know you pay so much a month because they don't have that a month and they also recognize that some days you don't have the money and if you don't have the money then the thing doesn't work and it's a choice not yeah. uh, you expect that you're not, you're going to have electricity when you Correct. don't have money yeah. so you, you you think that is an example of a business that is shaping the way Africans will live and, and are living now and it's very very good in terms of a startup that is actually changing lives and solving problems uh, yeah I think it's a very good example and I think more companies need to look at that and study it in a bit more detail rather than trying to bring Silicon Valley type solutions I agree with that. What about the future? What, what do you see happening? Um, if you have to look into the crystal ball and, you, from your, and using data and, and, and your experience, what do you see in the next in African think, tech ecosystem? I think it's generally? very difficult to look into the future in this world. I mean, I, I, um, I read a lot. I listen a lot. I talk a lot. Um, but even with all of those things, I don't think that I can tell you what the world will look like in three years' time, never mind five. If you look at the speed that technology is evolving, if you look at uh, the speed that machine learning is evolving, um, it's difficult to anticipate what machines will be capable of doing uh, two years from now. So I think it's very hard. And uh, people's response, you know, human response is, is, um, is exactly that now. It's a response to the technology, not the other way around. Um, so if you look at uh, the, um, the way Facebook is now giving you news feeds, um, you know, people say, well, you know, I can multitask. Well, you can't multitask, actually, um, because the, the machine is actually determining what you can hear and what you can't hear. That's true. Um, so, you know, if you and I uh, look at our news feeds, yours will be very different to mine because Facebook yeah, we, figures out that it knows what, you want. It knows what I want. So you think um, AI is, is, making, is making the dynamics of the future very, very different from what used to happen in the past. So we cannot use some of the information that we have now to actually 
predict the future because the dynamics of AI is just something that you cannot predict. At an incredible velocity. So, you know, it doesn't move from one to two to three to four. It moves from one to two to four to eight to 16 to 32 and and even even sometimes it's not even 32 it may make 42 you don't you cannot even predict it and say okay you multiply this and it becomes the nest it just grows it can be to 1000 but the interesting thing is that we're probably only at like two at the moment <laughs> so the speed is going to be incredible are you are you using AI in some of your technology? Not as much. At the moment? Not as much as we should do. Is that something that you yeah. think that you're going to be moving into? I don't at some think. Point I know. Machine learning? I know we will. The problem. You could be going the problem we have is we don't have enough data scientists around. Um, are you trying to build a, a skill set we and a talent base for we that? We haven't started to do that yet, uh, but certainly it's in, it's in my plans to do that because I think that we as a company needs it, the industry needs it, the country needs it, and so we do need to invest much more. So in what ways do you see machine learning um, being used or utilized by Safari? Oh, in everything. In everything. I mean, you know, it will do, it'll create credit scores for people who didn't have credit scores before. Uh, actually, in a lot of ways, much more sophisticated than you might even have here in the West. Um, I see it in terms of, you know, we, we use this phrase, a segment of one. So it's not, um, it's not de defining you by, by a group. But defining user, which is exactly what Facebook does. So Facebook and Google, Google especially, Google treats you as a segmented one. It gives you stuff which is very unique to you. And I think that that's what we will do when we work with partners. Providing we can protect customers' privacy and anonymity, then I think we can work with partners to deliver quite a lot of interesting solutions. You invest in a startup as well. You have like an accelerator program. Or is that something you're partnering with others doing as well? Um, the question is, are you doing that as part of involving in the ecosystem or part of we need to innovate, we need to um, disrupt ourselves and then we need to get involved in people that might actually disrupt Safari come later on and so let's, let's be investing in them. I think for sure we're not disrupting ourselves enough. Uh, and I'd rather disrupt myself than have someone else do it because at least I can predict it a little bit more. Um, and I think we need to do a lot more in terms of self-disruption. And that self-disruption will come internally and it will come in partnership with others. Uh, but our mindsets need to change to accept that the world is a disruptive world. And it's going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's just and is that why you're getting involved in a little small startup? Yeah. So, you know, I'd like um, some of these things to be the things which put us out of business in other ways. So... Um, that sounds terrible, but if you look at uh, WhatsApp, which came along and is currently putting a lot of companies out of business on things like SMS. Is that affecting you? Voice. No, it's not. Um, in fact, what we found is that uh, where we have lost, well, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is that the smartphone penetration isn't that great yet. But the second thing is that, you know, you, you can either swim against the tide or swim with the tide. And so what we've opted to do is to continue to invest in the network. So you now get the fastest network. And if you want to, if you want to do WhatsApp voice, um, or video, then, uh, and in fact, it's a bit of a problem for me at the moment because the downloads are so fast that before you know what's happened, your bundles are burnt um, because our 4G network is, uh, is the fastest in the country today. So we just made sure that our pipe is smoother than anyone else's pipe. So it's better to get WhatsApp. Um, okay, so, so Piper is no threat? Correct. Yep. Because you are able to also get involved in the value yep. that it created. Yep. 
So, and that's an example of how you're getting involved in new things. You're not afraid of doing new things that might potentially disrupt you. Oh, well, we are afraid. I mean, I don't want to turn out a song like Superman. So we are afraid and we do get scared sometimes. But that's life. I mean, that's what makes life more interesting. Yeah, only, only the paranoid survive, isn't it? That's the title of a book. <laughs> we, are, yes. we, we do get a little bit over-paranoid sometimes, to be honest. Right, I'm going to end the interview by asking you some quick-fire questions. And, and I need, just need you to just give me just quick answer to them. So the first one is, what is your biggest pain point at the moment? My biggest pain point is probably a little bit of... Um, sloth in the company uh, you know i'd like to see my guys working faster making swifter decisions um and i often say to them that it's not about making the wrong decision it's about making no decision that's the problem so your decision velo- velocity you decision want to ve- velocity is a nice word so it's not about the quality of it yeah. that's kind of good but so i always like to see good quality decisions yeah. but, you know but it's, yeah what is your number one growth metric my number one growth metric is probably um uh, it's it's a combination of mpesa and data growth and data is still growing quite quite well uh, and that's those are the two things which are driving the business and what book are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm reading the... I have it here, actually. Um, I'm, I, I kind of read about three books at the same time. So when I get a little bored with one, then I can, uh, switch, I can the switch to the other. And fortunately... And you read it from your phone. My books are all on... Um, oh, I've got, I still got my own book as books, my books are all on, on, my bed. on Kindle. So the, the current one is Artificial Intelligence, what everyone oh, needs to know. And um, <laughs> the other one is machine learning for absolute. Oh, you're beginners. really deep into this machine learning and, and, <laughs> and AI. Uh, the um, the the net and the butterfly. Uh, which, what's, the, what's that about? Uh, well, this is about it, it, it's it's um, subtitled the art and practice of breakthrough thinking. Um, so it, it encourages you to it it it, it kind of helps you to to solve problems. Um, you know, often you say, I'll just sleep in it. And sometimes you sleep in it and you come back and you think, I've got the answer. Um, so that's, that's one example of kind of breakthrough thinking. A more structured way of, when you're struggling with a problem, and the, more, the harder you think about it, the less likely you are to find a solution. Um, so there's some little techniques you can use to break away from that and come up with a solution. That's interesting. That's a nice book. Uh, who is the author? And I, I just finished a, another, a, a really nice book, actually. Um, the Breakthrough Thinking one, which was... Uh, it's Fox. Olivia Fox. Uh, Olivia Fox Cabani, I think her name is, and uh, Judah Pollock. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I actually picked this up at the weekend when I was reading Fortune magazine. It's one of the books that they'd reviewed. They recommend it. Um, and uh, another interesting one, which I finished uh, at the weekend, was When Breath Becomes Air. This is a book by... Uh, Paul Kalaniti. Uh, Paul Kalaniti, who is dead now. And uh, he was a neurosurgeon who contracted cancer. And so he wrote the book in the first half from the perspective of being a neurosurgeon, young, actually, 36, neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, um, to being a patient and talk you through it. So, you know, quite an interesting book. But I try and that, read a lot if I can. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that it's very important because then you get a lot of knowledge from other people. And that's, I encourage people reading a lot. I mean, and I, and I read a lot as well. That's why I asked that question. I think you, it, it shows that you read a lot from, yeah. from your depth of understanding. I, I think the, the problem we have these days is that people go for short form. 
So, and the shortest form, of course, is Twitter. And they consider Twitter to be something which is educational or informative. And of course, it's neither. Um, you only have to look at the, the tweets coming out from Washington to see where it's complete, it's complete rubbish. And so we've abandoned the long form. We are not able to use language in the way we used to use language. Plus, our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. It's shorter than a goldfish now, technically. I, I think the leaders of tomorrow will be the people that actually have the, enough time, dedicate time to read. There can be no alternative to learning. Which business, apart from anyone that you're involved in, is getting you excited at the moment? I don't know. I mean, I, um, I'd like to see more industrialization in Africa. I'd like to see more factories making things. Interesting. Um, you're a tech person and you're talking about yeah, because, industrialization. Yeah, because the, the, the challenge for Africa today is finding jobs. And tech is not going to find the jobs for the, that we need to find in Africa. You know, 10 to 15 million jobs a year is a lot. But, but is it creating jobs for jobs' sake or creating jobs that is actually meeting a particular need and creating solutions and products that meet a need? And, well, you, and can, that can be created using artificial intelligence, using robots or writing a code? Or yeah, so here's the thing. One person. Here's the thing. Africa imports 30% of its food. Why is that? People need to eat. Um, people also need to wear clothes, so why aren't we making our own clothes? In fact, we are in large parts of Africa, we are importing second-hand clothes from England. Uh, why are we doing that when we should be making our own clothes? So it's not jobs for jobs' sake, it's jobs for food's sake and clothes' sake. And if we can build the number of houses that Africa needs, we'll create another 13 million jobs and then we'll live in proper houses. Because you think a lot of things that we are using now are exported from other places and we, if we're doing that ourselves, then we will get, we create more yeah. jobs. So let's take them out of slums and build decent houses for them. Let's, um, let's grow and process our own food rather than export our coffee beans and then buy it back from Switzerland at, uh, at a huge um, multiple of what we, um, what, we paid, what we got for it. And that's again solving problems as well as creating jobs and, and making people uh, self-sufficient. Two questions. One is, what is the big, what is the next thing for M-Pesa? Blockchain? Or what are they the future yeah, I think blockchain this? is still a little, a little way away. I don't think it's, it's um, kind of proven itself yet. Uh, of course, some people are using it and some people are using it for nefarious <laughs> means so they don't have traceability. Um, although having said that, I think distribution leisure has a future of, in a number of ways. Um, I, you know, I, I think we... Look, I, we still have a long way to go with M-Pesa. You know, 90-something percent of transactions in Kenya are cash-based. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so, you know, even... By even with M-Pesa, that is yeah, hugely... Because fun. I was looking at the... The, the big, the largest refugee camp in Africa, in the north of Kenya, too. And I was looking at the website recently, and uh, there's a loop video there, just showing live in the camp. And uh, one of the key things that I saw was M-Pesa, local agent, one of the, this, the road. Yeah, so it the, seems to be oh. pictures everywhere. And you know, she's saying 96% is still cash-based. No, 93%. 93%, like over 90% is still yeah. cash-based. That is yeah. huge yes. opportunity for growth. Of course. So you see that as something that you'll be really focusing on a lot. Yeah, but 
but um, you know, there's the growth, but there's also the impact. So, uh, you know, I just want to impact more people. I want to make sure that we can provide healthcare solutions, agricultural solutions, educational solutions using M-Pesa, um, just to continue to make impact. And if, it, if we make impact, the profit will come. I work on three Ps. My first P is purpose, the second is people, and the third is profit. That's you good. need all those things. I mean, a lot of people try to get away without uh, taking care of purpose and they just focus on profit. But that's pretty short term because your people will abandon you at some point. And you can't just focus on people. You, know, you have to make a profit to make the whole thing work. Yeah. Uh, but uh, overriding everything else is a sense of purpose. Uh, that's a very succinct way of putting it. Yeah. What's the next thing for Bob Kolima? Um, I think the next thing is for me to go to bed, actually. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty tired. Yeah. What's the next thing in the future for you? I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I never plan it out like that. I, I take it one day at a time. But thank you very much for coming to this show, Bob. You're welcome. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A. Dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.